Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. And he called a meeting of the leading priest and teachers of religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said. For this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you, who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. And then he told them, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me, so that I can go and worship him too. He was a bad man, wasn't he? Would you pray with me, please? How sweet it is, Lord, to be your people, to look back on this time and see a baby coming, a precious child. Even today, you use children. You bless us in so many ways through the children, and we learn so much from them. Thank you for this season of year, a time when we all maybe are a little more gentle, mm -hmm. a little more kind. Amen. A little more loving. I love you so much, Lord, and I thank you for every person here that you have set us in families. I think I need to stop, Lord. I'm going to have the whole congregation in a, just in a mess with me. But you know my heart, and you know theirs. And this is a day all about you and not me. So I'm going to sign off right now, Lord. But we're here to worship you, and that's what we're going to do. We love you. In your holy name I pray, and thank you for the cross. I love you. Amen. You may be seated. <laughs> That's what happens when you sleep on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> and in the chair. <laughs> she, she slept on the couch because of grandchildren, not because of me. <laughs> Let's get that clear. I never thought about that, honey. I'm so uh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Let's go. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. We'll pick up where we left off last week. Let's talk about verses 1 and 2 real quickly, and then here we go. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, These were not kings, these are wise men. These are the priests of the royal family of Persia. These are men that read the stars every night. 
They read and they predicted people's future. They predicted how well a child of death is born under a certain star. And they had heard because of the books, the scrolls that the Jews brought with them when they were exiled into Persia. They knew that there was going to be a star, according to the book of Numbers. The king would come. And so, in the west, in the east, they saw a star in the west. And they saw something they had not seen before. I believe it was a miracle. There are a lot of possible explanations. And they said, that must be it. And so they headed toward the west. And the farthest away place you could go in a straight line from Persia, before you got to the Mediterranean Sea, was Israel. So they took off following the star, and they came to Israel. Let's continue now. Are you ready? In verse 2. They asked, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, verse 3, and this is where we start today. Then Herod the king heard, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. From the first, Christmas has been hard to envision without thinking of the Magi. In the catacombs all under Rome and under many of the cities where the Christians were persecuted in early years, down in the graveyards, down where people, they put the dead, in the early catacomb art, the number one theme in Christmas art is the Magi. More than the sheep, more than the shepherds, more than the angels. When Christians were persecuted down under the ground and they were doing their artwork, the number one thing they put in their art about the birth of Jesus was the Magi. And it's easy to understand why. Early Christians were poor, slaves, lower class. They loved looking back and remembering there was a time when their master was honored by the upper class, the bigger class. And so that's the number one theme in the artwork about Christmas in the catacombs. It's still, almost every nativity still has the wise men. When my children were little, and we barely had enough money to buy anything, we bought this little nativity set. It's about this big, about this tall. Maybe bought it from Sears. I don't know. It's about this tall. And it's got Mary Joseph and the baby, and you've got an animal or two, and you've got a shepherd or two, and you've got an angel on top of the nativity. And here come the wise men. And so all through the years, when our children were growing up, we would act out the Christmas story. We'd take them and put them in different places in the house, and we'd walk in here, we'd come. And Well, my son and daughter, John and Rebecca, when they would bring the Magi in, They'd come from a different part of the house, far away they'd come. They would always pretend that the Magi were kissing the baby Jesus. So, on our nativity, the Magi have no faces. They're worn off. <laughs> now, Ruthie and I have almost nothing that our kids are going to want when we're done. We just got stuff. Our kids are going to have a ball throwing our house away when they're done. When we die, they're just going to pitch off. Except. For one thing, anybody want to guess what there might be a fight over that we own? A nativity set about this big. They love that thing. And rightly so. The Magi are the reason we give Christmas gifts to each other. They knew they were coming to see a king. And so they came to worship him. And because they were going to worship him, they brought gifts for him. And the crowning idea of Christmas is to celebrate Jesus by making others happy. Did you hear what I just said? Lean over to the person next to you and say, that's profound. Do that right now. 
The crowning idea of Christmas is to celebrate Jesus by making people, by making others happy. The crowning idea of Christmas is to celebrate Jesus by making others happy. He came to this earth to make us glad, and the way we thank Him is to do the same thing for others, and we've been doing it now for 2,000 years. Now, when the wise men arrived, King Herod was very disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Before the Magi could get to the true king of the Jews, they had to get past the guy that thought he was the king of the Jews. And his name is Herod. And I talked to you about him last week. He was demonic. Vice had crushed every vestige of virtue in him. He ruled Israel for 33 years. Irrational, paranoid, violently suspicious. Every time a thundercloud formed on Herod's brow, a thunderstorm erupted in Jerusalem. And having weathered all of his moody tantrums, the people of Jerusalem knew that this group of men coming looking for a king meant trouble. And they had no doubt that Herod's reaction would be severe. Because to Herod, savage violence was a solution to every problem. He ruled Israel for 33 years. He executed by his own order at least 7,000 people. Ten wives really loved only one of them. I told you about her last week, Mary Omni. In a fit of jealousy, he killed her and took her body to his bed and kept her till she began to rot. But I did not tell you that not only did he kill her, he drowned her grandfather, the high priest. He murdered her mother, assassinated her brother, and killed the two sons he had by her. Herod was so hated that after 33 years of ruling Israel, he knew that when he died, there was going to be dancing and joy and celebration in the streets. So as it became obvious, as it became obvious that he was going to die, Herod arrested most of the great leaders of Jerusalem, men that people loved. He put them in prison and gave the order that the moment he died, they were all to be killed. So that Jerusalem would not rejoice when he died, but would be sad. So when the Magi arrived and said, we're looking for a king, everybody in town knew we got trouble right here. Isn't it interesting? We shouldn't be too surprised. We can be surprised about the excess of his severity, but really... Isn't it always the case that to unrepentant sinners, Jesus is always bad news? Go to school or work tomorrow. Talk about Buddhism for a while. Talk about Hinduism. Talk about Islam for a while. You can have a good conversation. Talk about the Judeo-Christian ethic. And yeah, you, you can do that. But start to bring Jesus into the conversation. Start talking about him and claim that he is God of very God. That he is the God. The God. Remind people there to follow him and obey him. And your conversation will come to an abrupt end. To unrepentant sinners, Jesus is always bad news. Verse 4. Verse 4. 
and gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, Herod inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means the least among the leaders of Judah. For from you will come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Wow, it's getting thick. Here come the Magi. Where's the king? Herod looks around. He knows he can't do too much too quickly because these are international guests from the big kingdom. And so he calls in the religious leaders and said, Do you guys have any idea what these boys are talking about here? Do you, do you know where this uh, great king is supposed to be born? And yes, the Old Testament had predicted 700 years before this moment that the Messiah, the king, would be born in Bethlehem. Now, for centuries, the oldest copy of the Old Testament that we had was from the year 1000 A.D., 1,000 years after Jesus. So a lot of times our enemies and our opponents would say, well, that's 1,000 years that you don't have any proof of what the Old Testament said when Jesus lived. And so they could say, well, it's easy for you to say that the king was going to be born in in Bethlehem because you might have made that up and just added that in because we got a thousand years here we cannot cover. And then in 1948, the most important archaeological discovery in the history of the world, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are copies of the Old Testament written 200 years before Jesus. So we now know when Jesus said he believed the Bible, he believed this story, he believed that story. We know exactly what the book said, whereas our opponents had always said, well, you don't really know what it said because you don't have any of the old manuscripts. Well, now we know exactly. And so, being the student that I am, I just thought I was going to find out for myself. Was the name Bethlehem in the Old Testament before Jesus came? Really? Was, was it really there? And I looked up the Dead Sea Scrolls myself. I looked at the manuscript. I Googled it. I got the picture of it. And sure enough, folks, at least 200 years before Jesus came, there was a prediction in the old book that the king would be born in Bethlehem. We did not make it up. We didn't twist history. We didn't have to. Now, it's interesting. Herod asked about the right book but he had the wrong frame of mind. There are many people who honor the Bible with their lips, but they don't intend to live the Bible. They, they treat it like a magic charm, something to get good luck from. Uh, in Islam, if you walk into a room where the Koran is in Islam, which is their holy book, a Muslim will never turn his back on the Koran. If the Koran is sitting like on a table, a Muslim will never turn like this and walk away. They say that's disrespectful. They believe that the book itself has some kind of magic in it, and so they will always leave like this. We Christians do not believe that. We believe it is an inerrant book that the Holy Spirit protected the writers. We believe it teaches us about life. We believe it teaches us about God. But we do not believe that the material itself has any particular magic to it. But that's exactly how Herod was treating this. He was treating it like it's a crystal ball, like reading palm lines on somebody's hand. 
consulting tea leaves, um, consulting a horoscope to find out whether you ought to do something today. Or, you know, why do people do things like that? Because they can get information, supposedly, without any moral responsibility. If you're checking out a crystal ball or you're checking out your horoscope, if you're checking those things out, actually thinking they're going to give you information, you can have the information without any duty, without having to respond, without being responsible in response. But if Jesus is the ruler, if Jesus is the king, if the Bible is the word of God, then you come knowing that, yes, I can read the scriptures and be blessed by it, but I also know that I have to have the right spirit. I must obey. I must receive it for what it is. It is the Word of God, and I must put my life under the Bible. So Herod missed the point because he was treating it like it was a crystal ball. The Magi, they got it. They came because the old book had said their star was going to come. Their spirit was right. Now, listen to me. If you miss everything else I say today, you listen to me right now. Don't miss the honor that God placed on the Bible here. If you were to draw a picture up here of the Magi on that whole wall, I mean a big deal. And you were to draw on this wall a huge picture of the star, you would not have the whole picture. Do you understand? Now listen to me. Listen to me. God made sure that the Magi could not find the baby Jesus without the Bible. It was not the star that was the final star of the show. The final star of the show was the Bible. No one can be saved apart from the Bible. No one anywhere in the whole world, no one in the rest of the history of the world, no one will go to heaven except they learn the way through the Bible. Now, there are other things that can start it. There are other things that can start the process. A tract, a verbal witness, a TV preacher, a billboard, sermon, missions, a friend talking to you about it. So there are things that can start it. But at some point, the road to Jesus always has to go through the Bible. Always. And I have admired and respected the Bible my whole adult life. And 48 years, I've read every word on every page. Because I cannot, for the life of me, think of any one book that's more important for me to read next year than the Bible. You pick out, pick out a book of the Bible, Isaiah. What book can you think of that would be more important for you to read next year than the book of Isaiah? And yet some of you in this room have never read it. So, I bring you my offering, my God. That's how I do it. You can get them here, both those doors as you go out. Give yourself to the Scriptures, folks. Listen to me. You'll never know how to live life without the Scriptures. No one can come to Jesus apart from the Bible, not even the Magi with the magic star, so to speak. With the miracle star, not even the Magi could get to Jesus apart from the Bible. Somebody say amen right there. I hate to roll my own, but sometimes you have to. Verse 7. Here we go. Verse 7. Verse 7. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi 
and determine from them the exact time the star appeared. Why did he want to know that? Because he would know how old the child might be because they believe the star, you were born under a certain star, so he believed that star, if he knew the date that they served the star, he'd know how old to kill the children. It's awful. It's horrific. And he sent them to Bethlehem and he said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Herod enlisted the wise men to have him find the baby. They became his own private detectives. They were determined the age of the children to be massacred. They didn't know it's what they were doing. And they were to find him and come back and tell him who the child was. Like many sinners, Herod believed that he could outsmart the Bible. There are many of you in this room who right now are toying with a sin. There's a temptation in your life. There's a reason why our Lord told us we need to pray leads. It's not a temptation. There's something in your life you're thinking about, and you think you will be the one that can outsmart the Bible. You think you can outdo this. And so they told Herod, the king will be born in Bethlehem. And he says, well, I'm going to take care of that. And so he threw himself up against this rock. He crashed himself. And that's what people have been doing ever since. They think they're smarter than the scriptures. They think they can figure it out. They think they can have the affair and did not haunt them the rest of their lives. They think they can cheat on their spouse. And their children not suffer as long as they live as a result. They think they can live a life of their own choosing, oppose the scripture, and get away with it. Through the years, I've been, I've been preaching for 56 years. I covered 52% of the Bible approximately. And for many years, I went through... The Old Testament on Wednesday nights, a chapter at a time. I got up close to the Psalms. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, right, right up in there. I got that far. Started Genesis 1-1 and just kept plowing away and got that far. One of the most amazing stories to me was a story. Somehow, I, I, just, I just had not put it together, really. But in my study and research, it finally hit me what had happened. It's the story of when Jericho had been destroyed by the Israelites, and they marched around, and the walls fell. God put a curse on Jericho. He wanted that site to remain forever, just like it was in ruins, forever to be a reminder of what he'd done. And so he said, if anybody ever tries to rebuild this city, when he lays the foundations of it, his firstborn son will die. And after he builds the wall and he starts to put the gates up as the last thing you do, his youngest son will die. 500 years later, 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 34. During the reign of wicked Ahab, a man named Hiel of Bethel decided he would rebuild Jericho. 1 Kings 1634. And when he laid the foundation, his youngest son died, dead. 
And when he put the gate up, his youngest son died dead. Now, folks, there are many of you in this room that are close to the mistake of Heel the Bethelite. You think, you think you can outsmart the hound of heaven. You think you can run faster. You think you can get away with it. This dramatic encounter between Herod and the Magi is the stuff that legends are made of, and yet this story is not folklore, folks. This is history. This is just real events, actual events that really happened in the history of the world. This is why becoming a Christian is never a leap of faith. Never do you have to take some leap of faith to become a Christian. No. Christianity always is a step of faith. Just one step. God made the world in such a way to where the people could know Him and love Him, enjoy Him. And therefore, He created a way of salvation to where it's not hard to become a Christian. The easiest part of becoming a Christian is becoming a Christian. Six-year-old children do it. I did it when I was six. So never did God intend for people to have to jump through hoops and, and climb up hurdles and cross mountains to become a follower of Christ. And the, re, the way that God arranged it was he created the world in such a way and then moved in the world to where that people don't have to know philosophy. They don't have to know religion. They don't have to know apologetics. They don't have to know all about Christianity and all the stuff that goes on with it. All they have to know, now listen to me, all they have to know is a story. History. At the very outset of the gospel, in the earliest days of Christians, Luke the physician said to his friend Theophilus, many have tried to write a narrative about this. But I want to sit down and I want to write things handed down to us. This seemed good to me because I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in orderly sequence. Why are the first four books of the New Testament Stories about Jesus. Because to analyze our faith, you don't study philosophy. You don't study apologetics. You don't study religion. You study history. We're the most solidly based religion in the world. Because we are built on the system where God created a world where history would unfold. Things would happen. And we could put it all together. And by knowing this event and understanding it happened, there's a response. And so the Christian faith is a compilation of stories. Micah said Bethlehem would be the place 700 years in advance. No one ever disputed that Jesus was born there. The Messiah had to be a descendant of David. And the Jews were the greatest genealogical experts in the history of the world. Jesus was a descendant of David. The Bible predicted that before Jesus came, there would be a forerunner. A forerunner who would have a powerful ministry. And the Bible tells us about John the Baptist, whom Jesus said was the second greatest man who ever lived. All you have to do in Christianity is follow the history. Just listen to the stories. You don't have to be a genius here. You don't have to figure this out. Just listen. A virgin conceived. She went to see her cousin who had... John the Baptist in her womb. 
And when Mary spoke, John the Baptist in his mother's womb leaped. Joseph had dreams. Magi from Persia saw a star. Jesus healed the sick. It had never happened in the history of the world. Never. Nothing like it. He healed the sick. Then he died on a cross. And he rose from the dead. And all of Christianity rises or falls in one story of history. And that is, did Jesus rise from the dead? If Jesus, just one event, that's all you need to know. Did Jesus rise from the dead? If he did, then Christianity is true. All of it is true. If he did not rise from the dead, it's all false. It's all just silliness. Paul himself said, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. That's why God, who's creating the world in such a way to where the people can find him, because all they have to do is hear the stories, Elijah, Elisha, Moses, you know, parting the Red Sea, you just listen to the stories, and you follow the story, and God allows the world to try everything else they can try, and then sends his son, and that one works. This, this makes a difference. And so God created the world in such a way where you just follow the story, one story after another. And one of the biggest mistakes that we make as Christians is we try to argue people into the kingdom. We're going to do a philosophical discussion with them. We try to outsmart them. We try to answer all their questions. When all we're called to do is just to say to people, now, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. And then God arranged it to where the most important event, that Jesus rose from the dead, that there would be 12 men who would walk with him for three years, know him, touch him, feel him, smell him, talk to him for three years. And then they would see him die, be buried, and he'd come back from the dead and be alive and they all died to prove what they believed. It's all about history. Therefore, Christianity is not about pie in the sky by and by. It is not about speculative mumbo-jumbo. Christianity is not about a warm, fuzzy feeling. Christianity is not gathering around the campfire and singing kumbaya. Christianity rises or falls on the verdict of history. All you have to do is tell the stories. And then as the Holy Spirit works in a person's life. As they hear the story. If they're willing to receive and to accept the truth. As conveyed to them. As proven by 12 men who laid down their lives. Then they will be saved. You don't argue them in. You don't outsmart them in. You don't give great philosophy to get them in. You don't do big discussions to get them in. You hang your hat on stories. Christianity is heaven entering earth. God became a man. Timelessness occupied time. Eternity invaded history. And the evidence is actual, recorded, verifiable events. The Bible, in other words. The Bible. These are the things that make Christianity what it is. And in Jesus, 
in Jesus, God created the world in such a way that all these predictions, all of history moved toward him. He's the epicenter of it all. And then all history comes from him. In him, you find this glorious wreath of evidence. He's the beautiful one. He's the precious one. He's the predicted one. He's the beloved one. He is God in human flesh. He's one of us. And maybe, just maybe, there's somebody here today that would just not take a leap of faith, but just a step of faith and say, Lord, I believe. I receive the evidence. I accept. Now would you come live in my heart? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and do some business with God right now, okay? Bow our heads and close our eyes and let's do business with God. Put all your stuff away. Put your face in your hands. If it'll help you, that's what I do, as I've told you. Let's do business with God. If you're a Christ follower, would you pray really hard for these next few seconds? That maybe someone would take a step of faith. Would you pray really hard to that effect? And if you're not a Christ follower... But today, maybe this simple explanation, maybe this simple little lesson here, nothing profound, nothing earth-shaking, just telling a story and saying this matters. If right now you have finally said, okay, I, I accept it. Jesus died for my sins. I'm sorry. He rose from the dead. I believe he's at the right hand of the Father. I'm going to invite Jesus into my heart right now. And so if you are ready to do that, if you want to do that, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. That's a very simple prayer. And the prayer doesn't save you. It is the prayer that I prayed when I gave my heart to Jesus. It's the prayer I led my son in when he became a Christ follower. But it's not the words. It is that something is happening on the inside, in the heart, in you, that the words are just merely an expression of. So if you, right now, if you would like to receive Christ, I'd like to lead you in this prayer. If it says what you want to say, please repeat it right now. Dear Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. Come live in my heart. I receive you as the master of my life. Amen.